Let us pray together. Father, as we once more come to look upon your word of truth, we ask again that you will open our eyes, that we may see you as you really are, that you will open our ears, that we may hear and understand this message from your truth, and that you will open our hearts, that we might receive it, and that we would go from here to worship you in spirit and in truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5 as we continue our look at the gospel as Paul lays it out in Romans. Last time we looked at the first 11 verses. We're now going to look at verses 12 through 21. Last time we, we of course saw that how the result of our justification, having been justified by faith, how we had then peace with God. And the great assurance and wonder that that brought us. Now Paul goes further in his argument. uh, In a somewhat, almost an an enigma of a passage. And we have to ask questions as to why and what he means by what he's saying here in this. But let's read it together first before we take a look at it. Romans chapter 5 verses 12 through 21. Therefore just as sin entered the world through one man. And death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men, because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as Adam did, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, Just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, You can... Read Genesis chapter 3 yourselves when you go home as homework. Uh, Let's take a look at this then. 
At some point in the 17th century, there was a man called McKee who lived in County Tyrone with his family. He had come to Scotland, or he had come to Ulster from Scotland uh, with the Hamilton family at the time of the plantation of Ulster, the family had. He settled and he, the family spread throughout the region. But there was one member of this family that made a very important decision. He decided that rather than keep his name McKee, he would change it. So he dropped the Mick and he changed the name to Key. Now that man was a long descent, a relative of mine, a distant relative. I don't know his reasons for doing it. I don't understand why he did it, but he did. I played no part in it at all. He didn't phone me up and ask my permission to do it. Yet I live with the consequences of that decision now. So the result of it, of course, is, is that when people see my name and they don't know who I am or anything about me, they think I'm from Korea or from Hong Kong. Uh, not that there's anything wrong from, with being from Korea or Hong Kong, mind you. But the point I'm trying to make is this, that what our ancestors uh, did affects the way we live in the present. Their actions have consequences for us, whether, whether we like them or not. We have to live with them. And as we look at Romans 5, 12 to 21, we will see something here that will make us uncomfortable. It will not sit well with modern Western individualistic thinking about human autonomy. In fact, it will fly in the face of that very idea. And it leaves us really with two choices as we approach this. Either what Paul is saying here is wrong, and he, to he was totally confused, and we know better than Paul now. Or our understanding about humanity is wrong and needs corrected. Now the idea, of course, that which we're talking about, uh, is, and what Paul speaks of here, became known as original sin. And we shall take a brief look at this idea. However, let me put a warning on it. It's worth pointing out, Paul did not write this passage as a systematic theology of original sin. Rather, in the passage, Paul almost assumes original sin as he begins to continue with his argument. So we must be careful as we approach the passage not to get sidetracked by this one issue. Now, it is an important issue, yes. However, it's not the real reason that Paul was writing this passage. So, as we look at verse 12, we find that Paul here uh, begins with, therefore. Now, when we see that word, that means Paul is uh, relating what he's saying now to what he has said previously. So, we need to understand the link between what has come previously, the passage previous, uh, in order to get the correct understanding of the message that Paul wants to give us in this. Now, you'll remember last time we looked at, at 1 to 11, and uh, Paul had begun to draw out the implications of our, our justification by faith. In verse 1, he had told us, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. The results of our justification, Paul was saying, are now peace with God. We have received reconciliation, and we are now looked on with grace, rather than with God's anger and his wrath. 
And also we have a sure and certain hope of our future. We can rejoice, Paul says, and we do rejoice. Paul spelled out the present implications and our our future hope that we have as believers in Jesus Christ. But in verses 12 through 21, Paul shows us a further implication of this reconciliation and peace that we have received. He wants us to see our justification not just in terms of of the individual benefit that we receive from it and the assurance that we have for our future, but he wants us to show us this justification has consequences, cosmic consequences for us and for all humanity, the whole human race. Paul lifts our eyes from our own personal experience to see the cross in the light of what God is doing throughout all of human history. As we look at the wonder of the cross, we must see not just its effects on us, but all of history as it changes that history in a most profound way. And in so doing, he will give us even more reason to hope and to have confidence in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look firstly at what Paul tells us about Adam and us, you might say. For remember, this this here is actually one of the most relevant uh, chapters in the whole letter to the Romans. When Paul was writing this in the first century AD, he was actually writing not only for us, but he was writing about us. As we sit here. Therefore, he says, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. Now, Paul here is talking about the two men, the first Adam and the last Adam, who is, of course, Jesus Christ. He gives us, if you like, a theological history of sorts that takes us from Genesis chapter 3 to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and shows us the significance of both men for the whole human race. The man Adam and the man Jesus Christ. So he begins at the beginning with the one man in verse 12, which if we read on is a reference to Adam. Adam the first man. And he explains that sin entered into the world, that is entered into the world of humanity, through this one man. And as we know, Adam sinned by eating the forbidden fruit and the result was death, as, as God told him. If we'd read Genesis 3, we'd have seen that. Probably Paul means uh, death here in both a physical sense and a spiritual sense. For both Adam and Eve, when they sinned, died in their relationship with God. They were cast out of the garden, out of the presence of the Lord. In that sense, they died. But also they died physically. They didn't die physically straight away, but they did die as a result of their disobedience. So sin comes in through Adam. And death followed because of their sin. But then death came to all Adam's children after him. As Adam died, so also the result was because all sinned. That's what Paul says. Adam died, so also that everybody dies. And the result, because all sinned. As a result of it, all sinned. Now that little phrase in verse 12 has been controversial for a very long time. 
What is Paul saying here when he says all sinned? Was it the fact that he followed the example of Adam and sinned as Adam did? He disobeyed. And this is uh, referring to individual sins that, of course, people commit. The, the view, of course, this view, was, of course, was given by Pelagius, the 5th century British monk. He was a heretic, by the way. So also, uh, verse 12, uh, so in verse 12, it's really saying, if, if we take that view, that what Paul has already told us in Romans, that everybody sins, that he's proved that in the first three chapters. He went about it in a very straightforward manner. He cut off every avenue of excuse for us. We are sinners. That's what he proved. Well, if we take it in its own context, verse 12 on its own, well, it could mean that. However, it doesn't fit the context of the whole passage very well if we understand it like that. For Paul's emphasis in the passage is not on the sins of many, but rather on the sin of the one man. Look at verse 19. Just as through the disobedience of the one man, so the many were made sinners. Verse 18, just consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men. So he's got his emphasis not on our sins, but on Adam's sin. For through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, the many, that is us, are made sinners. Paul seems to be saying that it's Adam's sin that makes us sinners. So how do we understand this then? It means that all sinned in the sense that all sinned in Adam. As he sinned back there in Genesis chapter 3, as you understand this story, so we also sinned along with him. You see, Paul is showing us how this one man affects many, how it affects us, how Adam's disobedience affects us. So as Adam sinned, he not only condemned himself to die, as God had told him, but he also condemned every one of his children to die after him and to inherit from him a sinful nature. When we are born in Adam, that is when we are born as a human being, we are affected by what the first Adam has done. Each of us is born sinful. That is with a disposition that is hostile to God. But much more than this, each of us is born a sinner. Not because we commit sin, or have committed certain sins, but in the, se in the sense of, of breaking a commandment, but simply by the fact that we are Adam's offspring. Part of the same race. Adam, as the first man, had a representative role. He was our head before God. He was our covenant Lord, our, our covenant head, if you want to put it that way, a representative, a federal head. He stood for all of us. And as the first, and as he, as he sinned and became a sinner then, we also become sinners and inherit from him that sinful nature that disobeyed God at the beginning. You see, we don't just sin because we're sinners. Rather, we are sinners, and the fruit of that is that we commit all kinds of sins. You don't start out in life with a blank slate and then stain it. Rather, we set out with a warped, twisted, and broken, and stained sinful plate 
And we are under God's condemnation and judgment. In Adam, we sin. Now, the automatic cry will be, that's not fair. How can God condemn me because of something I've never done? But it's worth remembering that Paul has already proved, as I've said, that we are all sinners and under God's judgment anyway. And of course, the point that I made at the beginning, God doesn't actually view us as a collection of autonomous individuals like we view ourselves. He views us as one race. Adam's helpless children, a collective whole all linked together. And we, we do this all the time, actually. Many of you today are British. You may not like that fact. You never asked to be one, but you are. Or imagine uh, if a pipe band were to walk down the Perth Road. You wouldn't, if you were out watching it, you wouldn't go and say, oh, what a lovely, nice collection of individuals with pipes and drums. Rather, you would say, what a lovely pipe band, because you take them collectively. You treat them as a whole. Paul shows us that we are sinners by the fact that we are Adam's children. And as a result of that one man's sin, we are under, he says, the reign of sin and death. Under its authority. Slaves to it. Paul, after verse 12, goes, on, goes then on a little detour. And he will not actually finish the thought he began in verse 12 until he reaches verse 18. Where we get the so, so also. That follows the just as. For he also shows how the law affects what he's just said. Because remember, from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, there was no law. The law had not been given. So without a law to define what sin is, how could anyone be held accountable for it? How could anyone be punished for it? But as Paul has shown, he knew that from Adam to Moses, even when there was no law to define sin, there was sin in the world. How could he know that? Because everybody died. Death reigned, he says, from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. And it reigned over those who sinned, whose sin was not like Adam's in that they actually broke a, a commandment that God had given, but that they sinned in Adam. Because of Adam's sin, they've died and suffered the consequences of that sin. If I'm right, there's a few medics here today in the congregation. If I were to ask you, uh, why do people die? I'd probably get a whole host of reasons. Cancer, old age, heart disease, whatever. Now, technically, of course, that is correct. But the main reason why anyone dies is sin. You will die. I will die. From what? I don't know. From We can't know until that happens. But the reason it will happen is that there is sin in the world. And with sin, death. You see, this is our experience in Adam. We sin with him and because of him. And so we die. We are under the reign of sin and death as Adam's children. It is inevitable. Then at the end of verse 14, Paul tells us that Adam was a type of the one to come. And so Paul now, having shown the relationship between us and Adam, now shows the relationship between Christ and Adam. 
And it's in this comparison that we see the difference the cross makes in the history of Adam's race. It's here that we see the comparison of Adam as our representative head and Christ. How Christ fundamentally alters history. And how in Christ we experience God's life rather than death through Adam. So Paul says this, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? Paul has in his mind here two cosmic events. The first, as we've seen, is Adam's sin, the fall. The fall of his race. And the second is the death and the resurrection and the, ascent, and the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the resulting justification we receive from that. But Paul first here needs to show how Christ is different from Adam. So what Christ has achieved for us, that is the gift here in, uh, in verse 14... The gift of God, the gift of God's righteousness through the gospel of Jesus is not like the trespass of Adam when he sinned. For the Adam's sin, for from Adam's sin, everybody dies. Death, death is our experience. Yet the grace of God overflows to the many. Paul uses the, the how much more argument again as he'd used in, in 1 to 11. If Adam's sin results in death, then being brought to us, brought to the many, how much more then will the gift of God through Jesus Christ overflow to us? That is, bring forgiveness and life instead of death. Ultimately, the gift is more effective and more powerful, we might say, than the result of Adam's sin. So in Adam, we experience only the consequences of his sin, yet in Christ... We receive the gift of God, which overflows, it superabounds for us. Again, the gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Verse 16. Here Paul contrasts the result of Adam's sin with the result of the grace that we receive through Jesus. When Adam sinned, this brought condemnation. On all his children. And they were all under his wrath because of sin. All under God's wrath. Yet the result of, of, the, of the gift of grace was much more diff was di much completely different. For if one sin resulted in condemnation for all, God's grace came after many sins, many trespasses. After years and years and years of human rebellion. And it brought justification. It brought righteousness, not condemnation for people. So again, the gift is greater even after many sins to bring life for people rather than condemnation. Adam condemned us. Christ makes us righteous. Then in verse 17, Paul brings the differences together and sums up the difference between Adam and Christ. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? 
With Adam was inaugurated the reign of death. After, all, the, after the fall, all men died, and so death had a universal reign over everyone. Nobody escaped its reach. Nobody was free from its tyranny. It was an evil master, and we all serve it because we are all Adam's race. But if that is how much, but then how much more do we receive the abundant provision of God's grace that he has given us? And those of us who receive it, we reign in life through Jesus Christ. Notice what Paul says here. Death reigned in Adam, but it's not life that reigns through Christ. It's rather we who reign through Christ. That is Christians. You see, when you trust in Christ and what he has achieved in the cross, dying for your sins in your place, suffering the punishment that you deserved, when you place your trust in Christ, you're taken out of the reign of death. And you're put under Christ. No longer does it have any say over us. No longer does death stalk us and hold us in fear. Rather, we have become a child of Jesus Christ. In Christ, we become part of God's new humanity. Remember what we talked about in in chapter 4? Abraham's offspring who will reign with Christ. You see, Jesus takes us from being servants of death to being kings of life. You pass from death to life in Jesus Christ. And so death's universal reign of terror is lifted and we experience life, eternal life. Jesus wins the victory for us as Adam's helpless children. And we are liberated to become kings. Kings in God's new humanity. That's why Adam and Christ are different. Born into Adam, we can expect only condemnation and death. But born again into Jesus Christ, we experience life and reign with Christ as God's children. Brothers and sisters of our new representative, our king, Jesus. We come out of Adam's reign into Christ's. You see, Paul explains to us that there are two humanities. The one under condemnation, Adam's humanity, and the other, God's new humanity through Jesus Christ. And they reign now and in the future. And this is what Paul will show in verse 18 and 19 as he he shows the similarities then between Christ and Adam. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. Remember, Paul here is coming back to the thought that he had began in verse 12, and now he finishes it. Just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men. That's basically a restatement of verse 12. Then we have the so also. Now we have the contact. So also, and one act of righteousness, that is Jesus' perfect obedience, 
both in his life as he obeyed the Father perfectly and in his death as he submitted to that. It was that perfect righteousness that Jesus achieved that allowed him to bring justification for sinners. So now that we are justified, we have peace with God. We have hope of our future. We have assurance of God's love for us. How much more then, now that we are part of this new humanity, in Christ as we are united to to him, will we be saved? We have passed out of the reign of sin and death and now reign in life. Through Jesus Christ, we experience life, eternal life. Life as it was meant to be. The life that Adam forfeited and lost, we experience through Jesus Christ. That reconciled life with God. You see, this is the similarity between Adam and Christ. Simply this, that the one affects the many. One sin condemned all humanity. So also, one man, Jesus Christ, redeemed his people. And allowed us to be part of that new humanity. Now, it's important to note the way in which Paul uses the word all here. In these, ver- in these two verses. For these have been misunderstood uh, and used to justify a belief that all humanity is saved through Jesus no matter what. Uh, especially in Scotland with Torrance theology. Uh, it's called universalism. But of course that's not what Paul has been saying if we take the whole letter of Romans as a whole. In Adam, all, that is every human being, will be condemned and judged. But in Christ, all, that is all who have faith in Jesus, will have life and reign with him. Remember, that's what Paul has already shown us. That it's only by faith that we are made righteous in God's sight, not by any other way. So it stands to reason that Paul is not arguing that because of the cross, every single human being will be saved, even if they have faith or not. So the many, or the all, as it relates to being in Christ, refers only to those who have been justified by faith and so receive the abundance of God's grace. And it's that abundant grace that Paul wants us to see in these verses. For in Christ, we are justified by faith and now stand in that grace. That's what he had told us in verses 1 and 2. And this grace that we experience now is, is a new realm, if you like. A new era for humanity. It's one in which we have assurance that the curse of sin and death is broken. That grace and righteousness now prevail over it. You see, Paul wants these Christians to understand that God's grace is more than sufficient to undo the effects of Adam's sin on humanity. It's superabundant. It allows us to have confidence and to understand in a far deeper and more wonderful way just what Jesus has actually done on the cross. We now have life in the present and in the future. And that's all the work of God's grace. His free gift to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus becomes our new king, our new head, and his obedience has brought us life. And you see, that's why works religion is so utterly folly, so stupid. 
because no amount of working or being good will ever get you out of Adam. No amount of works or good deeds or being nice will ever get you out of Adam. You must be born again. And so consequently, there are only two humanities in existence, those in Adam and those in Christ. And if you do not have faith in Jesus, then you are in Adam and you do not have life. If you're not a Christian, then you're under the reign of death. There's no hope for you in the future, no possible way in which you can change this circumstance. You can't somehow renounce Adam as your head and hope that God won't hold his sin against you. You are in Adam by the simple fact that you are born. And the only hope is Jesus. The one whose perfect righteousness allows us to be part of a new humanity, in an era of grace, in the reign of life, where you have peace with God, hope for your future, where you will reign in a new heavens and a new earth that God has promised. That is the reality of the cross. That is what the cross has done to bring us out of the slavery of sin, to let us reign as kings. That is what Jesus has done. And finally, in verse 20 and 21, Paul shows how the law of Moses affects both sin and grace. The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul's already shown in chapter 3 that the purpose of the law was not to bring us salvation by keeping the law. Rather, its purpose was to show up our sinfulness and our need of salvation. Now he goes a little further and he shows that once the law of Moses was brought into the whole equation... It not, only, it not just in, uh, shows us our sinfulness, and not just defines it and allows, it, allows us to identify it, but it would ultimately increase it. From Adam to Moses, we know that there was sin in the world. But once God added the law through Moses, the result was that sin actually increased. The more sinful attitudes were shown up. And sin was able to be defined and we might add, it caused people to sin even more. For once confronted with the law, the sinful nature desires to break it. God added the law so that the trespass, that is the law breaking, might increase. But the amazing fact is that where the law increased sin, God's grace increased all the more. The grace of God superabounded so that it was more than a match for the increase of sinfulness, if you want to put it that way. The language here speaks of an overflowing abundance that is available. It's not just a straight up and down payment for sin. Rather, it's an abundance of God's grace that meets the sinfulness of humanity. And what's more, he goes on to show that where this sin increased and sin reigned in the realm of Adam and so brought death, so now grace reigns. That is the realm of grace is open for Christians to reign with Christ. We are Christians. So we stand in that grace in the favor of God. 
And this grace comes in the righteousness that we receive in the gospel. The righteousness that only Christ can give us. That brings eternal life. Not death and condemnation. But righteousness and life. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see God's grace is more abundant than sin. It's more powerful to save than Adam's sin is to condemn us. God's grace in the gospel disarms the reign of sin and death and allows us to reign with Christ in life. It's abundant. It's lavish. It's lavish. It's more than we can dream about. It meets our greatest need. And much more than that, it even gives us eternal life. Not even the increase of sinfulness that the law could bring would win a victory over the grace that God had provided in the gospel. It's, you might compare it to a tug-of-war match. On the one side, you've got Adam, and you've got sin, and you've got condemnation and the law, and on the other side, you've got righteousness and life, and you've got the Lord Jesus Christ pulling. But it's not even like the two sides are even equal. Christ wins the victory with ease. He flattens Adam. He is more than able to make us righteous. More able to make us righteous than Adam is to condemn us. Life more able to reign than death to swallow us up in judgment. If you're a Christian, that is the reality you enjoy. Through Jesus. It is lavish and abundant and more than you deserve, yet it is the gift that God gives you. Paul wanted the Romans to see that their salvation was huge. It was part of a cosmic, cosmic plan where they were brought into a whole new realm of existence in Christ. That they could have confidence, that their faith was not misplaced but was resting in God's powerful, abundant grace that brings us life. Have you experienced that life? Have you tasted its sweetness? Rejoiced in its wonders? For if you haven't, then there is only death, condemnation. But in Christ we have righteousness. In Christ we have grace. In Christ we reign as kings. In Christ we have hope. In Christ we have life. Do you know it? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for the gospel. We thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you that even as death reigns, as sin condemns us, as we are born in Adam, as we are under your wrath, even more so, Lord, as we are in Christ, your grace abounds for us. It brings us out of that reign of sin and death and it allows us to reign as your people. It allows us to be that new people of God, to reign with Christ, to have that hope of a glorious future, the assurance of sins forgiven, the wonder of the gospel in our minds and on our lips and in our hearts. Thank you so much for what you have done for us by your grace alone. Help us, Lord, in the weakness of our sinfulness to rest assured in it, 
to have confidence in it, to know that your grace is sufficient for us. And even in the trials and temptations of life, to know that you do provide for us more abundantly than we could possibly imagine through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.